Hello, everyone. Before we jump into this series, I just wanted to say a few words about something that I'm offering you that is very, very connected to the content of the series. So if you listen to one or hopefully all four of these next episodes, you will see that we we dig deeply into how we as Latter-day Saint families can become stronger, how we can become stronger parents uh, to our children and how we can become uh, more able to adapt to the differences and the ways that people are growing here in and around the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in our own families. Because I'm so interested in this, I have more to offer you. So since this is a brand new thing that I'm doing, I want to orient you about the program that I have been rolling out in 2024. So here we go. Okay, so beginning in 2024, I am creating a library of hour-long ish online courses, each focused on important topics relevant to our faith expansion journey. So my vision for this is that within the next couple of years, I am going to have a growing but ever enlarging library of online classes. So just to give you some examples of classes that I have either produced or that I have in preparation, I am working on some classes on on marriage where one partner is more traditional and the other partner is more nuanced. I have up my sleeve and there have been many recommendations that I create some content on how to teach the strength of the youth manual to your adolescents in a psychologically healthy way. I have a class planned on teaching the importance of mindfulness and meditation in the context of LDS faith expansion. And I also have been thinking about doing some classes on helping us better understand the psychological impact of Ezra Taft Benson's To the Mothers in Zion talk. So these are just some examples. Each month, I'm going to be rolling out a new topic and a new class. I literally have so many ideas, I don't even know how I'm going to narrow them down, (laughs) which is a really good problem. Um, I'm definitely going to be creating detailed presentations for all of the content that I do in my year-long intensive group healing works. This curriculum that I've already created has been so incredibly healing for so many people that I want to make it available to more of you and to perhaps some of you who want to know what we're doing in the groups before you join them. And sometimes people that are in the groups would like to have more robust content or like a booklet, which brings me to my next point. So the way that I am going to be creating this library is this, I'm going to be doing a live webinar called my Latter-day Solutions series. This is going to happen one Wednesday every month. That's usually towards the beginning of the month. This event will be synchronous, it'll be on Zoom, and I will be presenting some of this beautiful content in the format of a formal presentation, which I'm talking like a PowerPoint with all of my talking points. And also included in this will be reflection questions, journal prompts, and and a beautiful digital workbook that you will have access to just a couple of days after the event. So you can attend the event if you attend the presentation live, you'll be able to participate in an anonymous question and response session at the end of each presentation. So if you are there, jot your questions down, put them in the chat, and one of my assistants and I will work through and answer all of your questions that will then be a part of this presentation uh, recording. But your face will not be on the screen, so don't worry about that. These will be anonymous questions. These, each and every one of these classes will be recorded and packaged as classes on my website for your future purchase and enjoyment. When you purchase either a seat at the live event or a class that has been recorded, the recording and the digital workbook will be yours forever. 
One of the reasons why I'm doing this is because I've had so many people say that they write pages and pages of notes on the content of the podcast. And what I'm trying to do is actually do some of that work for you by creating presentations that you can just jump into and take a look at these digital workbooks with all of the outlines and everything that I'm talking about, about these specific topics from this Latter-day Solutions series. And I want to tell you that the content that I do for these series is deep, deep stuff. It's a lot of work that I do, and I really, really go deeply into explaining it and laying it out and giving you opportunities to really dig deep into your own inquiry process as you reflect and journal. The content is amazing. And also, I must say, the workbooks are amazing, although I have nothing to do with the, the design of them, but I have cool people that I have, have helping me do those. The first three months of 2024, I have been focusing on strengthening our families as we grow in faith expansion. January of 2024's class was about shifting away from a beliefs-based parenting model, which most of us did when we were more orthodox. So we're shifting away from a beliefs-based parenting model and towards a model that privileges teaching our children values over specific beliefs. Uh, it was a wonderful, beautiful class. I am super proud of it, and I know that the people who have attended it and who've purchased it so far have given me just amazing feedback. February of 2022's class focused on expanding our worldview in our family culture and how crucial it is that we broaden our identity. So many of us uh, early on when we're more traditionally believing uh, kind of live under the identity um, as members of the church, and we really have a pretty small worldview, and the entire class there. Uh, on in February is my helping people better understand how exactly to move from a one pillar paradigm, which is sort of a church only paradigm to a multiple pillar paradigm of truth and light, basically helping us all see that we can find truth throughout the traditions of the world, throughout the world, throughout time. And it's not only helping us better understand ourselves and how we were raised with sort of a limited worldview, but it helps us shift how to be parents and how to be humans and partners, but we're basically expanding our horizons. What I'm trying to do in each and every one of these classes, as you probably know, if you hang out with me, is I'm always trying to raise our levels of consciousness. And I'm doing that in a very specific way in this class. Now in March, on March 7th, 2024, that is upcoming, I will be presenting some amazing content to families adjusting to living in mixed belief homes. I will be talking about some of the common myths out there about raising children in multiple beliefs home in multiple belief homes. I will be talking about many types of multiple belief families because there are many uh, here in the Latter-day Saint space. And I'm going to also talk about how each and every one of these constellations has potential strengths and vulnerabilities depending on the maturity of each partner. I'll also be talking about how faith expansion in family life, sometimes exposes already existing vulnerabilities in one's marriage and family, but that this is not uh, necessarily, this doesn't mean this is that all is lost. It just means that faith expansion offers marriages and families an opportunity to grow in, in ways that possibly they never have grown before. It really exposes some of our, our weaknesses and vulnerabilities, and we can uh, look at those head on and, and grow as families. Finally, in this uh, March 7th class, I will be offering some principles some basic principles to parents that they might consider when parenting children in a multiple belief family setting. Not only will you have a chance to answer, get your questions answered at the end of each presentation, but purchasing each Latter-day Solutions live class before it is recorded is going to cost you less because I want to encourage people to show up 
and participate in this live event. It's much more fun to talk to human beings than to talk to a computer screen. And also I want your great questions. So basically by attending live, you'll be getting your answers to your questions and you'll get a better value. Although I will say I am trying to make these classes very affordable because I care deeply about our community and I want nothing to be cost prohibitive. So jump over to latterdaystruggles.com to purchase a seat to attend my upcoming Latter-day Solutions live class, March 7th, 2024. And you can check out the library of the two classes that have already been recorded with beautiful workbooks. And sometimes I even offer little bundles. So see what kind of deals I have going on there. Now, without further ado, let's jump into this beautiful series because in this series, we are talking about how to strengthen relationships between parents and their young adult disaffiliated children. It is a phenomenal, phenomenal series. And I couldn't be more proud of it. And I am completely honored and blown away by the individual friend and colleague who you are going to get to meet right now. So let's jump in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Latter-day Struggles. This is your host, Valerie. I am pleased and delighted to have a friend and colleague here with me today. Hello, Liz McDonald. How are you? Hi, I'm great. I'm excited to be here. I am excited to have you here. Liz is a therapist. And I am really, really excited to have her with us today and for the next several episodes. This is going to be a four-part series. Liz has participated in and actually headed up a fascinating research project that a mutual friend of ours brought to my attention. And the reason why this matters so much to me is because I see the findings in Liz's research project all day, every day. In other words, I have seen this phenomenon over and over again in my faith crisis and faith expansion spaces, uh, spending hundreds of hours with hundreds of people, helping them become psychologically and spiritually healthy in the context of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And then lo and behold, I find out that Liz has done some research to really flesh out what is going on in one specific demographic of those that are working through faith development issues here in and around the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The topic of her paper, or the title of her paper, is The Impact of Religious Rigidity, Exploring Conflict Between Parents and Young Adult Children Disaffiliating from the LDS Church. So we are going to spend several episodes talking about what Liz learned from this qualitative research project and qualitative, I guess, was it qualitative and quantitative, Liz, or was it just qualitative? Just qualitative. Okay. So let me just define really quickly what that means. It's, it's, it's research that takes place by interviews. I've actually done qualitative research myself, so I'm no stranger to this process. And Liz interviewed extensively several people. And I'm going to turn the time over to you, Liz, to just talk a little bit about, before we actually jump into the research, I'm getting ahead of myself because I'm so excited. Liz, will you just like, introduce yourself? Tell us who you are and why are you interested in this topic? Yeah, you bet. I'm so happy to be here. I, like you said, I'm a therapist now. At the time that I did this, I was not. I was applying to grad school. Um, and so this was sort of part of my application process was to complete this project, which I did under the supervision of Dr. Darren Ecton at Utah Valley University. As I was trying to define a topic to research. I thought about my own background, which was really, I was teaching parenting classes for about 10 years before I started grad school. And the things that I saw that parents were struggling with tended to be quite similar. It was really interesting that I saw similarities between LDS parents 
immigrant parents and the similarities that I'm talking about that I was seeing that were really causing a lot of pain were parents struggling with the normative processes of differentiation in their children and parents who were experiencing their children's differentiation as a sort of deep personal rejection. For immigrant parents, it was sort of a different flavor. It seems like there were um, a lot of fears about what it meant to be raising children who were American and in some ways very, very foreign to everything that they were and everything that they valued. And then, of course, with religious parents, it was just a slightly different version of that, that like, what would it mean to try to be raising children in this Orthodox religious faith, and then have their children questioning or rejecting or differentiating out of the faith. And the conflict that came up for people was huge. The conflict and sort of like the um, the harm that I was seeing in these relationships was really, really significant. And because I was working with the parents, I knew that the intentions were good. I knew that their hearts were in the right place. I knew that they wanted to maintain connection. So then it became clear to me that they may not know how and may not understand differentiation well. And so that's sort of led to me trying to define this disconnection that's happening between generations and how can we better understand and get better information to the parents so that they can maintain the kinds of relationships that they want to. I love that, Liz. And what I love about what you're setting us up to do here is our hope here, Liz and I already talked about this offline before we hit the record button. We would love for this to be a series where if you feel like you are the adult child of a more orthodox parent who is a devout member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that you can feel safe in sending us, sending them this series because we we both have a heart to help families heal. That matters to us a lot. And something else that I'm really grateful for. Liz, is that I'm really, really grateful that you seem to have a lot of background yourself in understanding different demographics. So it sounds like this research sort of honed in on the conflict that comes up as adult children are differentiating in the context of their faith tradition, but it's really pretty lovely that it's nice to see that it's actually more of a general phenomenon that can happen when a child differentiates in a different way, like culturally, for example. And so so you decided to hone in on what happens between a young adult child and their parents when they decide to differentiate. I just want to throw a thought out here just as we set things up today. Liz's research really talks about when a child, and I, I'm going to say that word, when, yeah. I, when I say child, we both mean adult child. Yes. Um, and that can actually, well, let me just qualify Liz's research is on young adult children and their conflict or the pain that is caused by their disaffiliating with the LDS church. But what I want to throw out there as a, a therapist who's worked with people of all ages is I noticed that what Liz found in her research is also accurate to describe older people and their strained relationships with their older parents or parents and their strained relationship with their adult children. And also I've noticed that these things even come up when people haven't actually even disaffiliated, but that they're actually just differentiating and deciding how to define their LDS compliance or relationship differently. I mean, what I guess I'm trying to say is not only is Liz's uh, research accurate, but I think we could even say at least antidotally and with my experience on the ground, it's, it's even bigger. <laughs> it's more yeah. common than perhaps uh, the paper even articulates. And so this is a big deal. 
I love this paper because I sit with people all day, every day, and there is so much pain. There is so much pain around people growing. And I think that's what's so heartbreaking is what you taught me, Liz, is you were able to hone in on who you talked to and what they said with, in some ways, I'm going to let you describe your research a little bit more, but with 100% consistency, every person that you interview were saying the same things over and over again. And a lot of it is they're growing. They want to be deeply connected with their families. They love their families. They're grateful for their heritage faith in many ways. And also they're having to make they're feeling like they have to make a choice between owning their own truths and sometimes feeling like in owning their own truths, they have to re they, they feel as if they might become estranged from the people that are the most important to them. So that's what we're going to be digging into today. And for the next three episodes, Liz, will you talk a little bit about the research itself, the number of people that you interviewed, the process itself, and I'll kind of throw some other questions at you as you, as you get, as we get going. Yeah, absolutely. So like you said, this was a qualitative study, meaning long form interview. I asked four questions of everybody. Um, and then I would ask follow up questions about their answers. I had 15 subjects. They were I was recruiting specifically between the ages of 18 and 29. I think they all ended up being actually between 21 and 29. Most of them were from the Wasatch Front with I think two exceptions, three exceptions. Yeah, I was honestly stunned at the level of saturation, at the level of consistency between subjects who were very different in so many ways. But the things that they were, the things that they were struggling with were very, very consistent, just far more saturation than I expected. So that is sort of a researcher's dream, I think, to find saturation quickly and easily. But it also just revealed like, okay, well, this is a real finding. This is a real problem. This is significant. Statistically, you don't get more significant than like complete saturation, right? So let me yeah. define really quickly for those who I'm, I'm right here with you because I've done qualitative research, but probably a lot of people out there are like, what does saturation even mean? So what Liz is talking about here is that when someone begins uh, doing a process like she did with interviewing and she only asked four questions. And so really subjects or these interviewees can go anywhere. Like they have a lot of li li liberality to just talk. And what Liz is saying is she started noticing that they were saying the very same kinds of things over and over and over again. So saturation basically means you start hearing something so consistently that you're like, oh, we have hit a phenomenon that is consistent with this population to the extent that we can make some assumptions about it. And Liz actually mentioned, and when I was reading her research, I was kind of like my jaw dropped when she said with her 15 interviewees, some of these three of the four topics that we're going to tackle together that she found that was consistent, they were consistencies with 100% of her subjects. That's mind blowing for a research project. And just to to further impress the, the listeners, <laughs> It's, it may be important to note that this was a grounded theory project, meaning I intentionally went into it without a thesis, without any belief of what I would find. And I didn't do any coding until all of the interviews were completed, meaning I wasn't looking for themes. The questions didn't change. I wasn't following up like, gosh, I wonder if this person experienced this as well. And I didn't actually, I didn't perceive the saturation myself until I was coding, until I was looking at the themes and I'm an old fashioned pen and paper girl. So I had my color coded post-its and Sharpies and 
I think my children thought I was like plotting a murder. Um, you know, I had like <laughs> strings and graphs all over my walls in my office. But yeah, it was it was very organic. I guess the themes that emerged were very organic. And I'm not surprised one bit, Liz, because there was nothing that I read in this paper that I haven't seen countless times in the hundreds of hours I've spent working with people in this population. And so having come into this situation, just curious, but not with a proposal in mind, like, I think this is what I'm going to find. And sometimes when we do that, it's like leading the research, meaning that we kind of find what we're looking for. Liz is saying she wasn't looking per, uh, per se for anything, but not only did she find it, but she found it with 100% consistency with every single person that she interviewed. Now let's talk just a quick second uh, as we get started on really going deeper into this, Liz. Every good research project talks about its limitations. And I think you did a wonderful job of this because what we want to make clear as we kick this thing off is that to talk about this phenomenon does not equal that every person that disaffiliates from the LDS church is going to have this experience with their parents. Can you say a little bit more about that, Liz? Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that you're bringing that to the surface right now because these subjects that I found for the to participate in this study, it was convenient sampling. They were all affiliated with UVU somehow because that was the age range that I wanted to look at. They all self-identified in response to my invitation for an interview as experiencing conflict with their parents that was rooted in religion. So I want to emphasize that like that is who I was studying was people who were experiencing conflict because of religion. There are many, many, many parents who handle this beautifully, who handle it well, who navigate it and maintain connection at the same time. That is not what I was studying. Right. So what we're trying to kind of talk about here is that when an adult child has a negative or painful experience with their families, what they experience is very, very consistent from family to family. Now, if we could, Liz, part of this beautiful research project that you did was an overview of your 15 subjects and what they had to say. Can you just give us, spend a few minutes, if you would, talking about these interviewees, what you learned in these, interview, in, in these interviews? Because to kind of set the stage here, what you and I are going to spend most of our time talking about is your findings, what you found that was consistent. These four topics that uh, three of the four, a hundred percent of the young adults talked about and of the fourth, 80% of them talked about it. So we're going to really lean into those topics more because that's where we're learning how to see what's going on so that we can look at how to do better and how to grow from this. Right. But before we do that, I'd like to give you a chance to talk about the individuals themselves because they're more than subjects. They're human beings and they have some really unique and painful and important experiences. So just, just spend a few minutes talking about what you learned from these people. Yeah. Frankly, I was stunned by what I heard and the thoughtfulness that every single one of my subjects brought to the interview there was not one exception to this. These, these I'm going to say it again, children, they were smart. They were articulate. They had clearly chewed on this for years. You know, met most of them really for years. They had been trying to figure out who they were, trying to figure out what God is to them, trying to figure out, trying to navigate these, these big, it doesn't get more big. The stakes don't get higher. It does not get more existential than like your identity your connection to a higher power. And so I think I was, I was pretty blown away by the things that they shared, by the insight that they brought to their own experiences. 
um, and but to the by the perspective that they were able to hold, the compassion they were able to find for their parents who had, in many cases, I think, caused a lot of harm. And again, unwittingly, I think, again, it's important to acknowledge that the intentions were good, but the harm was very, very real. The impact was very different from the intention. I laughed. I cried. One of the things that doesn't really show up in the themes were these like elaborate ploys that multiple subjects reported to pretend that they had been going to church for a period of months or years when they were sort of exploring and trying to figure out their level of activity, their relationship to the church. There was one subject in particular who would always like put on a white t-shirt and church clothes before he went to Sunday dinner at his parents' house. And then he would go so far as to like look up the lessons and study online so that he could participate in Sunday dinner conversation. Like this guy is probably more prepared than 75% of like the Sunday school teachers that I've had. Right. So the, the effort that these kiddos went to, to sort of protect not just the relationship and not just themselves, but their parents from their struggle was really remarkable to me. And I think that was one of the things that was hard for me to witness was the, this protective instinct of the child who senses that the parent actually can't tolerate who they are fundamentally and can't maybe can't love who they are fundamentally. That was devastating to listen to over and over and over and over again. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. And I'm thinking about how we'll go deeper into this in these next few hours that we're together, Liz, but so much of what it means to be human is to, to be want to be known and that people care enough to know who we really are and how we're navigating life and what you found and why I think you and I both feel so strongly about this is that this institution, I believe, really cares about their families and they have no idea sometimes <laughs> how unwittingly they are not helping parents and children have the eternal bonds that I know they want the families to have. And so I think having these conversations is really important because on the ground, we have to look at how does the theology and how do the teachings and how does the culture and the belief systems, how does it actually impact a family's capacity to know one another, like truly one another, not a facade of somebody, but truly know one another. And what you bumped into and what these adult children kept saying over and over again is that at the end of the day, they needed to create some sort of a mirage or a facade of themselves to be okay with their parents and that they were willing to go through great lengths mm -hmm. to pretend to be someone that their parents needed them to be rather than to be themselves. And of course, there's not a long shelf life on that kind of a relationship. And this is why these uh, adult children ended up finally having to, a lot of them felt like they kind of had to make a choice a little bit. Like I have to self-define and I hope my parents will still love me. And maybe they won't love me the same way or they won't accept me the same way. And this relationship will inevitably change, which brings up a huge amount of grief. And here we are. So give us, if you would, Liz, let's start talking about the topics. Give us an overview of the four topics in just a few sentences, because then we're going to dig deep into each and every one of these topics and give them a lot of attention. Yeah, the, the four findings were just again very briefly parents who were disconnected they were disconnected often from self 
from others and from time or from the present moment. And we'll, again, we'll get into kind of what that looked like. We found parents who had maintained a real certainty of their worldview, a sense of their own rightness. Parents who had participated in constructing this really conditional version of love and worthiness and acceptance, that love and acceptance must be earned through goodness, through behavior, through prescribed rightness or righteousness. And the last finding, which was the most surprising to me, was heightened risk exposure. And I think this is so important because I think that there is an emphasis on safety within Mormon parenting, a real desire to protect our children from suffering, from pain, from danger. And as a parent myself, with three teenagers, my oldest is actually turning 20 today. So like, I'm in it. I'm in it with you all. I understand the motivation to try to keep our kids as safe as we possibly can. And I have, through my clinical work, through my research, through my experience, come to a place where I'm not sure that that is the highest goal. So, and we will talk about the ways in which this desire to keep our kids perfectly safe actually creates more danger. Thank you. Yes, you did such a beautiful job of finding these things. And now we're going to spend some time breaking them down. So just to give you a little bit of a lay of the land for the next three, well, for this episode and then the three that follow. Today, we're going to spend the rest of our episode talking about Liz's first theme. And what I mean by that is she found in all of these interviews that these the participants talked about the same four things, which she just went over. So we're going to talk about the first finding today. Then in our next episode, we're going to talk about probably the second, third, and fourth, but we're going to just see how, how long-winded we each get. <laughs> um, then thereafter, we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about some things that came out of the realization of these four themes. And then the very last episode, we are going to talk about how these findings and her research can be plugged into stages of growth, specifically, oh my gosh, what's his first name? Eric? Eric Erickson, right? Yeah. Uh, Eric Erickson's uh, stages of psychosocial critical periods. This framework is a really interesting uh, way to look at what is happening in these families of parents with religious rigidity. So as we keep saying, we promise this is going to make so much sense as this unfolds. This is a big topic and this will just kind of give you a sense of what to look forward to. So Hello, dear friends. As you probably know, I love creating the Latter-day Struggles podcast for you. I am so committed to providing you with frequent, honest, psychologically sound content to help you find faith, peace, confidence, and direction in your faith journey. However, I need your support. The content and the demands of this podcast have made it necessary for me to give up my previous work as a private practice therapist. As a way for you to show your support and gratitude for my work, I invite you to become a paid subscriber to this podcast, which will give you access to all of the Friday episodes. All Monday episodes will continue to be free of charge because I want you to be able to continue to know what we're exploring each week here on the podcast. So for only $9.99 a month, you will not only continue to receive the content that has been so pivotal to your faith journey, but you can also help ensure that I can continue to serve this community your small cumulative contributions are already making such a difference. And also, you will be honoring the dedication, education, and commitment of a female Latter-day Saint professional 
who was brave enough to ask to be valued monetarily for her professional contribution to her community. Information on how to subscribe, information on how to become a monthly patron through my Patreon account, and also information on how to make a one-time donation through my professional Venmo account can all be found in my show notes at the bottom of each episode. So thank you so much for your ongoing support and trust. Now back to the show. Jumping into topic number one, Liz, what all of these participants found as they had disaffiliated with the church is they noticed consistently, or at least their experience was that in trying to, well, maybe I'll say this and you can correct me if I'm wrong, okay? What they noticed consistently was that their parents struggled with general issues of disconnection. They found that their parents, or at least their experience was, they felt that their parents struggled with being connected even with them themselves. They also found that their parents struggled with being connected with others, including the participants themselves. And then these participants also um, noted at 100%, like all of them said something that led to this conclusion that they really struggled, these parents, these Orthodox parents struggled with connection with the present moment. Now let's just break these down. Liz, talk to us about when these participants talked about their, their noticing that their parents were disconnected from self. Say more. Yeah. Um, what I was hearing was stories that revealed that these parents were disconnected from their own values often, from their own desires, from their sense of pleasure, from their intuition. That was a really big one. And their sense of worthiness and worthiness and belonging was often quite shaky. And I would say like externally oriented, you know, that they had a really external sort of locus of control, an external sense of there's some authority that is outside of me that determines my goodness, my worthiness, you know, how much I deserve love and belonging to borrow language from Brene Brown. So that's sort of the, the disconnection from self went pretty deep for most of these parents. And again, from what I'm hearing from the kids. And then it did not surprise me that these same parents then struggle to connect to their children, because I believe that there's like, I mean, and this is anecdotal, but if there's nobody home in all of these ways, who is there to connect to the children? You have to have a self, you have to have a sense of your own desires, a sense of what you think is funny and what you like to eat and what, you know, like in order to make real contact with another person, you have to know yourself before you can know how to know another person. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes so much sense. I, I love what you're saying. And I'm really thinking about how we keep talking about these are unintended mm -hmm. consequences of a high demand religion and parents who love their children and love God and love the church. And they're so like loyal and service oriented and mean so well, but in so doing sometimes developmentally, they haven't come to truly know themselves because they're checking in with what the church wants them to think, feel, and believe so much so that if it bumps into anything that comes up inside of themselves, they will instantly hide that away or perhaps reject that about themselves. So, so much of their identity is outsourced to the religious institution 
that they foreclose their capacity in some ways to self-define. And therefore, when these kids disaffiliate, <laughs> the ultimate expression of self-defining, it terrifies these parents. And of course it does because two things are going on. I think number one, it's scary to the parents because of the meaning around this, which we're going to talk about this a lot more later, but it's scary to the parents that their children are doing something that in many ways the parents have never even thought of considering doing for themselves, which is this is who I am. This is how I believe. And it's different than what an authority figure has, has invited me or and asked me to believe. And so really, really interesting that the kids notice that like the parents are so committed to this thing on the outside. They don't really haven't gone through the cognitive and psych psychological process of self-defining. And so the kids scare them to death. Something else that you said in your, uh, in the paper is that the kids noticed in this piece about disconnecting with themselves, that they, a lot of these parents consistently were profoundly committed to duty and specifically duty as it relates to the church. Can you say a little bit more about why, why does this matter? Why is this relevant inside of this particular topic? This is a tricky one for me to talk about because I don't want to undermine or de devalue the parents' set of values, which do, in many ways, pressure them to choose the institution over the relationship, the church over the child. But when the children are talking about this, it's excruciating to listen to. And what they were noticing was that they had a strong sense or had already experienced that when it comes down to it, if the parents are pressured to choose between say protecting their child or having their child's back in some way and their obedience to the church, they will choose obedience to the church and sort of leave the kids out in the cold. So it is a deep, deep rejection. And I think um, even when you were talking before, I, what I was hearing was this, we hear the word selflessness sort of thrown around as a virtue often. Um, but when you were talking, I was realizing that like what we're describing is parents who are fundamentally selfless in ways where there's it's foundationless. Yeah, self-discovery presents such a threat that individuation or differentiation presents such a threat to their faith that they avoid it or resist it or deny it or repress it. I don't know what all those processes would look like or feel like to the parents. But I think there is this deeper or this deep conundrum that I don't know how to solve, like as a therapist, as a parent, as a human, that I see where if I have experienced a lot of pain at the hands of someone or something, and this is someone or something that you really love, to me, I think it often feels like, so my pain doesn't matter to you. And I, I see that happening a lot in different kinds of relationships, not just with the church. I see it happening between divorced parents, where you know, like, gosh, if you still love your dad who hurt me so much, what does that mean about how you feel about me that my pain maybe doesn't matter to you? So I think it happens on many, many levels. But that seems to be sort of a fundamental problem that needs addressing that needs overcoming that like, is it okay for you to keep loving someone or something that has really hurt me? And I this is a problem with no easy workarounds. I think if there were easy workarounds here, we would have found them by now. You know, yeah. it's complex. You know, you talk about how these are complicated problems. And I think about how in so many ways there is such a 
a loyalty and an allegiance and an affection for the church. And so when the parents bump into their disaffiliating children or their children that feel differently, it does feel in some ways like such a, a, a personal affront. And I think that's probably where healthy individuation is so important, even for those families. And this is where I guess we're circling back to something we said a minute ago. Your research doesn't talk about this, but in your limitations, you do talk about this. There are families that do okay with their children disaffiliating. And I think it's because, this is just my hunch, those parents have in some ways taken ownership of themselves. In other words, they love the church. It served them well. It continues to serve them well. They're active. And also they have come to know themselves. They are in some ways connected to themselves enough to where they understand the process of another person connecting with themselves in a perhaps different way. And so I think there's some connection there that when a parent in these worst case scenarios is disconnected from their child, it's probably correlated to the reality that they don't really know themselves well and that they experience a lot of fear around the possibility that if I believe differently or think or feel differently than what the church says, there's something at my core that is wrong, not okay, less than bad. And so they repress that. And then of course they, that translates over into their terror when their child does what kind of to them feels like the unthinkable, which is not only believing and feeling, thinking differently, but going so far as pushing the church away. And something else I will, I'm remembering from the paper Liz, is that one of your research participants said, and maybe more of them, this was just a direct quote that you made, that if there was space for them to be themselves in the church, they wouldn't have even wanted to leave. Yeah. And I know that some people and you know, many people in my communities, they're, they're finding ways to make space, both owning themselves and being part of the community. So I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. But I think certain people have certain experiences where they do feel like they don't, they can't make a choice and probably or it's possible that 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 begins at home because they feel like they can't even have a conversation with their parents that even taps on the door of a different or more liberal way of believing, thinking, and feeling about any teaching of the church. How, how, does, that, how does that feel based on your research, Liz? Yeah, I think that really lines up. And I think another thing that you're sort of circling in on is how natural this big personal rejection that these parents experienced is if so much of their identity has been sort of outsourced to this institution, that actually that is then very personal. Yeah. Let's, let's pivot just a tiny bit into what your research participants talked about in terms of their noticing their parents struggling with connecting with them as children. I found it incredibly fascinating that the adult children noticed that their parents or some of their parents really struggled with parental healthy intimacy. Say more about that if you would, Liz. Yeah, there were a number of subjects who talked about parents and specifically dads who knew how to preside, but not to connect. There were subjects who talked about the only time that they really talked to their dads was in the context of a structured interview. It was a term that I was not familiar with, like a PPI, like a, I think, is that a personal priesthood interview? That's right. So I learned that term um, from my subjects. 
but you know, like sort of like being called into dad's office, having a seat and sort of like having these, you know, spirituality checks to sort of like, how's your faith? How's your, and that is, that's something that I related to on a personal level too. I thought like, oh, I'm somewhat familiar with a parent's primary involvement being this, you know, being this sort of like spiritual checkup. And again, I know why this is happening. I've seen the conference talks. I've read the Enzyme articles. I feel like I understand the pressure um, that the parents are experiencing that would lead them to into more of like a presiding authority role in their homes and in their families than a parental role or a connecting role or a warm role. But the children experienced it as incredibly distancing and disconnecting and in many cases intrusive when when that was the sole subject of a parent's curiosity it felt very violating to many of my subjects that actually tracks with me because i i think what you're describing to me is that some of these some of these adult children felt as if the parents had leapfrogged over other elements of healthy connection with their kids and just honed in on the spiritual piece which is Again, we talked about these are big topics. This is existential. This is about my relationship with with goodness, with sin, with worthiness, with God. And in some ways, the parents, I feel like maybe this is just me, but I don't know if they've, they had earned it sometimes, right? Like, in other words, I think those are topics that organically come up. The big stuff comes up naturally and is invited in intimate relationships when one has laid the groundwork in interests, um, that have where the stakes are lower. And you're describing that these kids often talked about in some ways, perhaps relational psychological underdevelopment in just parent child relatedness, just being a friend, being a, a a guide, a lead, someone to talk to somebody to be there when someone had come home after school, having had a bad day. And that that was not part of their normal family flow. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, exactly right. And just this, yeah, like you're describing a complete vacuum around emotional expression. And often that included affection of any type, whether verbal or physical. And along with that, like what you're talking about, the curiosity about like, are you dating anyone? How is school? What music do you like? Why do you listen to that? (laughs) You know, like, you don't have to agree with your kids about everything, but it's probably good to keep your finger on the pulse of sort of their day-to-day, their lives, the things that they think are important in order, like you're saying, to earn those deeper confidences, which are so personal. They're not just personal to the parents. They were very personal to the children as well. Well, and what you just said has me thinking that if the parent is only asking the child who they're dating to check in, if they're dating before they're 16, or if they're obeying the law of chastity, or if, you know, in other words, if they're wrapping their interest into some sort of a gospel principle, the child is probably going to map the agenda, some judgment and some possible like worthiness pulse taking and kids are smart. And I think there's a big difference between, I really care about what you're thinking and feeling and experiencing independent of how much it lines up with the strength of the youth manual, right? And I think that's tricky because parents, uh, we are we are here to care and to guide and to direct. And you're, there's a big difference between having an agenda around church compliance and 
just being with the child. I remember getting better as my children. I have some young adult children and some teenage children right now. And the earlier version of me was 100% all of the things I just described, very agenda oriented and things like that. And then later on, it was, there is no topic that is not on the table. If you have a question, if you want to talk about anything, we are here for you. And sometimes I remember leaving conversations and going, oh my gosh, that was a lot. <laughs> like that was overwhelming. And I didn't exactly know how to handle that, but I was so honored that they took me for my word and they really were like, I struggle with this, or I don't like this, or I don't agree with this. And we can just sit and be with. And I think that's what you're noticing. Some of the kids wanted and longed for because children want intimacy and connection with their parents. Um, One last thing I want to talk about regarding this disconnection with others, is you mentioned that in some of these, well, in all of these families, your, your participants noticed that emotionality was oftentimes connected to bearing of testimony, or it was almost like the only way that parents were able to really connect, or at least a lot of these kids talked about their perception was if it was related to something spiritual, you were able to be emotional, but there wasn't a lot else going on. Can you, I don't know if I said that right, but go ahead and speak on that for a second. Well, this is a real point of curiosity for me. I don't have much to say about it other than just observe it as a point of curiosity and also one which I've observed. I remember going to girls camp growing up and noticing the, have you been to testimony at a girls camp, like testimony meeting? Oh yeah. Abundance of emotional expression, safe to say, right? Like so many tears and that's not unusual for war testimony meeting as well. But what these kids were noticing was something like that that's just sort of the culture of the family where there's very little, if any, emotional expression or emotionality that people are not getting emotional about personal relationships or struggles or failures or pain. And that almost all emotional expression was almost, I'm going to say like mis- misappropriated almost into these really spiritual contexts or religious contexts, which it's just, it's interesting. Yeah. It's an interesting phenomenon. And it sounds like what you're describing is that these kids, these adult children in your interview were just observing themselves that like, that's what they had noticed, or that's what they had internalized as they were observing their younger childhood and adolescent years in their homes. And again, just phenomenon that they picked up on that perhaps we could interpret as a cultural thing, a comfort level thing, uh, perhaps we could uh, line it up with some level of uh, psychological development kind of thing, or perhaps again, I'm just, I'm just making some assumptions here or just playing around with possibilities. It could be that parents, because of their deep care for the church and their need or their desire that their children sort of uh, become sort of spiritually embedded in the faith, they were facilitating experiences and emotionality was one's way to experience the spirit, to have the spiritual experience, to become sort of like more deeply believing in the faith of their families. And we're going to talk a lot more about covenantal religion and its impact on that. I don't know what the thing is. I don't know what's going on there, but I think it's just fascinating. I I think that's why research is so fun to do. Okay. I want to talk for our last couple of minutes as we visit today This is a really interesting one. So as you'll notice, we have been talking about the observations of Liz's research participants who struggled the most as they disaffiliated from the LDS church. And the biggest findings uh, around connection was these, uh, these research participants found or at least observed struggles that their parents had in connecting with themselves 
in connecting with others. And then the final one is these research participants noticed that their families struggled mightily with connecting with the present moment. Now, I know when I started reading, I was kind of like, what does she mean by that? Or rather, yeah. what did they mean by that? But you're going to tell us. So jump in and, and help us understand this list because this is really fascinating. Yeah, I thought this was a really interesting and surprising um, theme that emerged. So many subjects described that their parents had a complete inability to enjoy the present moment with them. One very young subject, I think she was 21, she was the youngest participant. And she said, I don't know how to comfort my parents anymore when we are together. I'm sitting right there, but they're acting like I've died. She describes her parents becoming weepy, fretting, and just a lot of distress about losing eternity, um, losing their eternal family, losing the prospect of eternal salvation as a collective. Another a 29-year-old subject said, to my parents, it feels like losing eternity. My younger brother is still active, so they've shifted all their hopes and dreams to him now. I just wish they'd put more priority on our relationship. So yeah, this theme is a, it's a little bit hard to talk about, and I don't want it to get too convoluted, but I think knowing what we know, so to put it in a little bit of psychological context, knowing what we know about the power of mindfulness, which is just the ability, the capacity to be here in your body, in the room, in your chair at any given moment, right? Like to come back to the present moment, that's mindfulness. We know the benefits psychologically, physically, of being able to stay connected to the present moment. We know that anxiety and depression live in the past and the, you know, the future. And we know that peace and serenity really are in the present moment. There's a lot of data that backs this up, that the ability to connect to the present moment is critical for well-being. So this stood out to me as being really significant because these parents seem to be so preoccupied both with the past and with the future that they can't actually enjoy like Sunday dinner with their kids. And these kids are sitting there saying like, you're saying you wanna spend eternity with me, but we can't just have dinner. You don't seem to be enjoying my company now. This doesn't make any sense to me. And they are, they're, they're caught kind of like fretting between regret about the past. A lot of talk about what they've done wrong, the parents, um, the ways that they have failed, the family home evenings that they should have had more regularly, all of that. So that's sort of like the fretting about the past and then fretting about the future is obviously what is going to happen when we die and we're no longer together in the way that I was planning on. This picture of this eternal family that has fractured, really, it seems to kind of haunt these parents. It's almost like they have taken the theology and feel so much grief that they're living in a, an eternal presence separated rather than, how do I say this? They their fear and distress uh, about losing their child for eternity. They're actually just taking that experience and beginning today. Yeah. Yeah. That why put off till tomorrow what you can start today, right? That maxim is like, oh, apparently you can turn that around and really use it in a harmful way. And again, nobody's doing this intentionally. The stakes are high for these parents. I understand that. But the suffering is very real for both the parents and the children in these conversations, in these settings, at these dinners, at these family get-togethers. And I wonder, I wonder if it's necessary on this level. It just, it's hard for me to watch people suffer this way. My heart breaks actually 
for both sides of this interaction as I think about the families. A lot of the people that I work with in my faith expansion groups, this is such a big topic, Liz, we spend many months on it. There are other topics that we spend a few weeks on and then we move on to something else. It's the the devastation and the anxiety created around how can I be connected to the people that I love the most as an evolving, changing, growing person. And that's why I think this is research that applies to young adult children, but it actually applies to some uh, population that's much larger than that. Anybody who is not only disaffiliating, but even just changing their views and reinterpreting their relationship with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints almost inevitably is going to have some degree of struggle with this because if what they do or how they interpret themselves estranges them on any level from temple worthiness, the, you know, it's like the gig is up. That is the thing that estranges a a parent from a child for eternity. And it's paralyzing to the parent. The parent responds with grief, with anxiety. The child feels extreme guilt, sometimes shame. And then they oftentimes, especially in the case of your young adult children, they have 40 or 50 more years to navigate this sometimes with their parents because they're young and they have a big, beautiful life to, you know, that is going to be unfolding. But the theology itself sometimes estranges the parents from even participating in this beautiful unfolding life of their adult child because they're already grieving the loss of eternity. And we're going to spend more time later talking about some of the tactics that these parents use in desperation to sort of reel their kids back in because their fear is so intense. And so it's like everybody's in pain here. Everybody's in pain. Any thoughts on this, Liz? Yeah, I think you you summarized that so beautifully. And I at the risk of getting personal, which is kind of a, you know, I don't know if researchers are allowed to talk about their personal. Please do. <clears throat> beliefs or experiences, but I, I am not, I'm not excited about worshiping a God who is so small. That idea of God doesn't actually make sense to me. That theology doesn't really seem to hold any water for me. It feels very Old Testament. It feels very fear-based. It feels very lower law. And I wonder if there's a simple solution in sort of moving forward in time into the New Testament where we have a higher law, which is essentially love. The things we do as parents when we are motivated by fear, and I will speak personally, not great. Right. Um, When I am looking at my kids who are hurting each other or being selfish or, you know, and I think like, oh, this is going to keep them from loving relationships and it's going to keep them from having the kind of life I want them to have. It's really easy for me to make really bad decisions in that moment when I'm like, I'm going to parent this quality out of them today. Today's the day. Never goes well. When I'm able to back up and slow down and hit pause and regulate my own distress over what I'm seeing and respond from love and from patience and from the knowledge, the belief I have that God is much, much bigger, much more capacious than than the human mind can comprehend. And maybe we don't need to be worrying about the minutia on this level. 
then I'm free to like respond in the way that actually like aligns with my values and maintains the connection and often come out the other side of whatever the conflict was more connected to my kids. And I'm not saying that's how it goes every time, <laughs> yeah. but I'm saying the difference between me as a parent when I'm motivated by fear versus me as a parent when I'm motivated by love is really, it's drastic. You know, yes, I couldn't agree more. And I am a mom of kids that have seen the best of me and the worst of me. <laughs> and, and you're speaking my love language, Liz, because I agree. God is so big. And one of the things I care the most about is helping each of us that follow the work that I do come into a contact of a God that is inclusive and all loving. And that we model that belief in our families, in our systems, and in our institutions. And when we don't see it, we call it out because that is the God that I feel is, is worthy of my worship. Uh, something else that you said that I think is really, really beautiful, and I think it, it, it bears my highlighting a little bit, is that when we parent in fear, we don't have the bandwidth to get curious. We can't really ask about the pain of our children. We can't ask about their reasons because we have already arrived at what the conclusion has to be. If eternal life in the celestial kingdom and temple worthiness is the bottom line, then any struggle that our child has that pushes up against or complicates their, the means by which they get to the celestial kingdom is something that I don't have the bandwidth to hear. And your, I know your research bore this out, which is the kids said because they were so worried about eternity, they couldn't listen to me tonight as I, if, if I were to break down in tears and say, these are my concerns about this belief or this practice. And so the children have felt really, really estranged from their parents in the depths of their distress. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Liz, I think this is a good place to stop. We are going to start our next episode tackling the next two to three topics. Is there anything you want to say as we close this episode up today, Liz? No, I'm excited to get on to the next themes. I think, um, I don't know, this conversation is really exciting to me. And I really appreciate the space that you hold for the reality that these parents, I believe, and this is what motivated this research in the first place, want to do better. And I believe that with better information, they can and will. And I've seen that happen already as I have presented this at Firesides and in other podcasts and in other interviews. I have, I've gotten feedback from people about the conversations that they are having that they didn't know how to have. And we can talk more in the next episode about the don't ask, don't tell policy within families yeah. um, regarding religious practice. But I think I'm really excited for, for the rest of this conversation. I agree that all parties involved in the conversation that we're having, they, they love one another and we're all trying our hardest and doing our best. And sometimes we just don't know what to do. And so I think it's so important for those of us who have the courage and the desire and the ideas that might be healing that we, that we raise our voices and encourage connection and love like what you and I are trying to do in this series. So I'm excited too. We're going to kick off another series or another episode here in just a few days, as you all know. For those of you who have benefited from this and think that this might be something that would be beneficial for your friends and loved ones, please share this episode. Also, if you're interested in any of the other things that I offer here on the Latter-day Struggles community or on my platform, 
jump over to latterdaystruggles.com where I do some one-on-one consulting. I also run groups. I also have my Latter-day Solutions series. And by the way, this topic that Liz and I are tackling for the next several episodes is actually timed really fortunately because I am actually running the first three classes in my Latter-day Solutions series, which is an online class that you can attend either live or recorded. It has a workbook and a digital presentation that you have access to forever. This is what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about parenting children in a more loving and expansive way as you work on your own faith expansion journey. So this topic, if it resonates with you, jump over to latterdaystruggles.com and purchase one of those courses that will hopefully expand your capacities to not only do this as a parent, but uh, learn how to perhaps be in a deeper and closer relationship with your more traditionally believing parents. So we will see you all next time. Thanks for being here. Bye-bye. Dialogue Podcast Network.